You're listening to the free, abridged edition of the Energy Transition Show. American coal. Nuclear energy. Natural gas. Hydro. Solar power. Wind turbines. We're becoming a monumental exporter of natural gas. This boom in the United States is not a bubble that's going away. The oil's still there. I'd rather pump it from another country and save ours, and then when the rest of the world runs out, hey, guess what? We can yeah. still turn on our lights. We've run into a problem where we have constraints, where there are limits now. The new phase we're going into related to the exhaustion of these resources, there's no replacement. This is a one-shot affair, and we're unprepared for it. Really, we do not have very much more time to get a handle on this problem. It's better to get to a renewable future, a sustainable future, sooner rather than later. Get there before we do the environmental damage, not after. For March 21st, 2018, this is the Energy Transition Show with Chris Nelder. In this ninth part of our mini-series on climate science, we turn to one of the key suspects in the changing weather we've been experiencing in recent years, the shifting shape of the North Atlantic jet stream. In this episode, we'll just call it the jet stream. Located about seven miles above the Earth's surface, the jet stream is like a strip of strong winds that blow from west to east at up to 275 miles per hour, and it has a huge influence on the climate of the northern hemisphere as it pushes air, heat, and moisture across the North American continent, the North Atlantic, and Europe. The jet stream is partly fueled by the temperature difference between icy air over the North Pole and the warmer air near the equator. But climate change has caused the Arctic to warm faster than equatorial zones, and this decreasing temperature difference has made the jet stream wobblier in recent years than it was in the past, allowing the cold Arctic air to dip further south across the eastern seaboard of North America, the Atlantic, and Western Europe. As a result, the normal weather of the past, which featured intervals of cold and snow interspersed with warming spells, has been replaced by unpredictable, persistent weather extremes. These irregular shapes of the jet stream have been linked to everything from destructive heat waves and droughts to the so-called polar vortex extremes of the 2013-2014 winter, the bomb cyclone of this winter, Superstorm Sandy in 2012, flooding in the south, and the recent drought and wildfires that have ripped through the American West this past fall, which have been tied to the so-called ridiculously resilient ridge that sent warm air up the West Coast and generated big storms in Seattle, the Pacific Northwest, and Alaska, while depriving California of much-needed rain. It has also led to some unprecedented weather. Temperatures that were 20 to 30 degrees warmer than usual in the Arctic, paired with 20 to 30 degree colder than normal temperatures in Siberia. Warmer January temperatures in Alaska than in Florida. Record load measurements of sea ice in the Arctic. Longest recorded streaks of super cold days in places like Boston, and so on. But how do we know that these extreme weather events are linked to climate change? Well, in part, we know it because of the kind of research that our guest in this episode has done. Valerie Truet of the University of Arizona has found evidence of significant changes in the jet stream by studying three centuries of European tree ring data. That record showed that, starting in the 1960s, deviations in the weather exceeded the normal variance of the past, suggesting a connection to the changing climate. Other researchers have come to similar conclusions by studying things like the difference between Arctic and mid-latitude temperatures over time. And they conclude that increases in greenhouse gas emissions will make the jet stream increasingly wavy in the future, exacerbating such extreme weather events. In this episode, Valerie will explain her evidence for the shifting jet stream and try to help us understand what the future may hold. 
So let's bring her to the conversation now. Welcome, Valerie, to the Energy Transition Show. Thank you for having me, Chris. So I think I'd like to start with some of the basics, since I assume that most of us don't know all that much about tree ring science. And then we can move on to some of the findings of your research. So how do trees respond to climate? And what can you read in the tree ring record? Trees are sensitive to climate. They like it when it's warm in summer, and they like it when they have water in summer. So depending on where the trees grow, we can extract climatic information by looking at their rings. So for instance, here in Tucson, in the southwest where I'm at, the temperatures are pretty good year-round for trees to grow, but it gets too dry in summer. So the trees like wet summers and they don't like dry summers. So how that is expressed in their tree rings is that in years with wet summers, the trees grow a lot, they're happy, and so they form wide rings. In dry summers, they form narrow rings. And so if we extract a sample from a tree that grew here in the southwest by looking at the pattern of wide and narrow rings, you know, if it's a 500-year-old tree, we can say something about every single year of those 500 years and how wet or how dry it was. Interesting. So you must be talking about making very, very small measurements. Exactly, yeah. So one thing I want to make clear is we don't cut down trees as a rule of thumb. We extract, so we have a hollow core and we extract, you know, five millimeter cores out of the trees. And then we sand the sample so that we can look at them through a microscope. And then we measure them under a microscope, so there's software that measures the movement of your mouse as you move your sample under the microscope. So that's, we're talking about millimeters and percentages of millimeters mostly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay. So let's talk about your research. So the abstract of your most recent paper, which was published in January of this year in the journal Nature Communications, ends with this mind-bending conclusion. Quote, our results suggest increased late 20th century interannual meridional jet stream variability and support more sinuous jet stream patterns and quasi-resonant amplification as potential dynamic pathways for Arctic warming to influence mid-latitude weather. Wow. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Can you put that in plain English for us? <laughs> I'll give it a shot. So what we did is we used tree rings to reconstruct the latitudinal position of the jet stream, so how far north or how far south the jet stream was in a certain summer, in every summer over the last 290 years, over the North Atlantic. So we reconstructed the latitude of the jet over the North Atlantic over the last 290 years. And what we found is that that latitude becomes more extreme, the variance becomes stronger over since about the 1960s. So we find more northern and southern extremes of the jet stream position since about the 1960s. So that's that year-to-year -year meridional variability that we're talking about. Meridional just means north-south, really. So we find more year-to-year -year variability in north-south extremes of the jet. And 
that can be explained by if the jet is wavier. So if it makes bigger waves, you get more north-south deviations. And the reason why we decided to reconstruct the position of the jet is that what the jet stream is going to do under anthropogenic climate change is a very hot topic of debate amongst climatologists. The models and the data don't all agree on what's going to happen to the jet as the Earth warms. And one possibility is that the jet has already started and will become wavier, so will make bigger waves. And this has important impacts on weather patterns in the mid-latitude, so in North America and Eurasia for the Northern Hemisphere. Right, and we're going to get into that detail in a little bit, but first I just wanted to understand, so you can tell the shape of the jet stream from this tree ring record because, what, because you know where the trees were and you can see how the growth pattern changed from place to place? Yeah, so... We looked at tree rings from two places, from the British Isles, so Scotland mostly, and then from the Balkan Peninsula, Italy, Greece, and Bulgaria. And those, we took tree rings from those two areas, and the tree rings, we measured the density of the wood, which is very sensitive to summer temperature. So the tree rings are sensitive or reflect summer temperature in those two regions. That's on the one hand. On the other hand, the summer temperature of those two regions is strongly influenced by the jet stream in the North Atlantic. So if the jet stream is in a northward position, then the summers in the British Isles are warmer than normal, whereas the Balkans are colder than normal. On the other hand, if the jet stream in the North Atlantic in summer is in a further south position, the British Isles are cooler than normal, but the Balkans are warmer than normal. So the position of the jet in the North Atlantic creates this temperature dipole between the Balkans and the British Isles that is reflected in the temperature-sensitive tree rings from those two locations. So by combining those tree rings, we can get at the jet stream position. Huh. That's pretty cool. So your research actually, as you mentioned, looks at this tree ring data all the way back to 1725. Obviously, you weren't personally out collecting the samples then. So where did these samples come from? How was this data record assembled? It's a combination of things. So I did go out to the Balkans. I've been there quite a few times now to collect samples. Well, you certainly weren't there in 1725. No, but we collected the data, I think, in 2009. But if it's a 300-year-old tree, it gives us data from 2009 all the way back to 1709. Oh, so these actually are samples that were collected in recent history. Yeah, exactly. It's just from very old trees. Exactly, yeah. And it's going to get better. This is a work in progress because we went back to the Balkans, to Greece, in 2015, and we've now found some really old trees there. So we actually found the oldest known living tree in Europe, right there in Greece. It's 1,075 years old. Wow. And then we're not restricted to living trees, so we can actually use the wood from 
trees that have died a long time ago if the wood is still on the landscape. So we can use wood from trees that, for instance, died 500 years ago and date that using tree ring research to go even further back in time. So right now, our tree ring chronology for that site in Greece goes back, I think I should check with my grad student, but I think we have a record back to 738 CE right now. Wow. Yeah. A 1300-year-long record. Wow. That's amazing. I'm surprised that wood from a tree that's been dead for 500 years would even still be readable. Yeah. I mean, that's the advantage of working in Greece. It's at high elevation. So it's high up in the mountains and it's a dry environment. It's Greece, so it's a Mediterranean environment. And the wood remains on the landscape for a very long time because, you know, it's a rocky landscape. There's not much that makes the wood decay. So it can stay there for 500, even a thousand years. Wow. Wow. Now you're jogging an old memory here. I once visited the bristlecone pines oh, of yeah, the southwest, yeah. and those get even older, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. So those are the oldest known living trees on Earth. So the oldest right. one is close to 5,000 years old, the oldest living tree. Yeah. But also there, the wood can stay on the landscape for more than a 1,000 years. So I think the bristlecone pine tree ring record is now, I want to say, 8,000 years long. Just from from living trees and combining it with deadwood from the same site. I'm trying to remember where I saw those. It must have been the southwest. It must have been like Arizona, California, somewhere in there. The oldest grove, and it's actually a national park, the Bristlecone Pine National Park. It's in the White Mountains on the border between California and Nevada. Right, right, right. Exactly. Huh. And can we get some climate data from that record as well? Yeah, so these are really good and interesting questions. Bristlecone pines are harder to extract climate information from because they are at very high elevation. So the trees are sensitive to summer temperature because it gets really cold. But it's also a really dry environment, right? This is between California and Nevada. So it's what you see in terms of what the trees record in their ring width is a combination of temperature and precipitation. Because it's the two combined, it's hard to disentangle which of the two it is that you're seeing in a certain year. Oh, wow. Interesting. All right. Well, that was a little excursion, but I just had to take it because I I remember I was a child, I think, when we visited that national park and I was just remembering those old, old trees. Yeah, they're so beautiful. Yeah, they're pretty cool. All right. Well, so in this record that you've studied back to 1725, at what point in that record did you detect a change in the historical jet stream patterns and what did those deviations look like? Yeah, so we developed a record from 1725 up to the present. And when you look at the average position of the jet over this time period, we don't really see a trend in either direction. So it doesn't look like the jet has moved northward or southward. 
substantially over this period of time. What we did notice, though, was an increase in the variance of the jet. So more extremes, both northward and southward extremes. So the average stays the same, but the amplitude, so the north-south extent of the jet, has become larger since about the 1960s. And okay. it's it's much higher now. So it hasn't, over the last 300 years, it hasn't been as high as it's been since the 1960s. We hope you've enjoyed this free sample of the Energy Transition Show. Our full episodes cover much more and are generally at least an hour long. In addition to two full new episodes each month, subscribers can also view interactive transcripts of our interviews and explore our extensive show notes with links to all the research resources and news items for each episode. Our subscription podcast works in all podcast apps and players, including iTunes, and is downloadable. The first 33 episodes of the Energy Transition Show were free and always will be. So if you want to see what our full shows contain, feel free to check those out. Then we hope you'll become a member and support our show. To become a subscriber and enjoy our full offerings, just point your browser to energytransitionshow.com and join. Annual subscriptions are just $60 a year. Monthly subscriptions and per-episode purchases are also available. In order to bring you the most unfiltered, unbiased, honest information we can produce, we have elected not to take any sponsors or advertisers. 100% of the revenue that makes the Energy Transition Show possible comes from listener subscriptions. And let me offer a special welcome to the students and educators out there who have joined our new subscribers. A half dozen university classes are now using the show as coursework, with more joining all the time, so welcome. And if you're a student or an educator who would like to inquire about our unbeatable educational discount, just shoot me an email at chris at energytransitionshow.com and we'll work something out for you. So join us today and support our ad-free, hormone-free, organic, handcrafted, artisanal podcast featuring high-quality, cutting-edge interviews and news about the most important story of our time, energy transition. And now a quick look at some recent news items. Item 1. According to data released by the National Centers for Environmental Information, which tracks the nation's major weather and climate events, there were 16 billion dollar disasters in the United States in 2017, tying the record set in 2011 for the most billion dollar disasters in a single year. While the tally includes insured and uninsured losses, such as damage to buildings and infrastructure, along with other costs for businesses and crop damage, it does not include expenses associated with health care and loss of life, according to the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration scientist Adam Smith. The 16 events include freezing damages to crops, tornadoes, flooding, hail, droughts, wildfires, and hurricanes Irma, Maria, and Harvey. All told, these 16 weather calamities cost America $306 billion and killed 251 people in 2017, according to NOAA. Item 2. The debacle of South Carolina's failed V.C. Summer nuclear plant, which we covered at length in Episode 62, continues to unfold. South Carolina lawmakers have been inundated with form emails from people pretending to be constituents. Well, that's it for this episode of the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for listening. You can find our show archive and give us feedback and suggestions at energytransitionshow.com and follow us on Twitter at Transition Show. Our theme music was by Mike Sugar and Mark Burnfield, who you can find online at mikesugarmusic.com. The Energy Transition Show is a production of the XE Network.